This is the iconic Steamboat Willie tune. The movie of Mickey Mouse driving his boat was the most popular animated film of its day, becoming one of the first to feature synchronized sound in post-produced soundtrack. And right now, there's a debate about its copyright. As of the time of this recording, it is set to go into the public domain on January 1st, 2024, meaning that anyone can use it without permission. That means that next year, we could get dozens of Steamboat Willie games, accessories, and if Winnie the Pooh was anything to go by, a weird horror movie. But how does copyright law work? How does public domain work? Are board games and their mechanics trademarked? Minasan konnichiwa and welcome to the board game dojo, where we use science and history to learn more about board games and the people who play them. I'm your host, Eric, and today we are going to be exploring these questions. From the copyright battles of Reiner Knizia to out-of-print games, from mega IPs to small indies, I am going to do my best today to tell you all about copyright and intellectual property and how it affects the games you play. But before we begin, there are two things I want to say. First off, credit where credit is due. This episode's topic was inspired by the discussion on Blue Peg, Pink Peg, a large board gaming podcast from a few weeks ago that I will leave a link to in the description below. The second thing is that I am not a lawyer, and I don't even play one on TV. I've done a lot of research for this episode, but please don't take anything I say as legal advice or legal gospel. So let us begin with a foundational question. What even is copyright? This is something that's been argued over for centuries. The first tangible answer we get is in 1662 with the licensing of the Press Act in England, which gave the printing guild the exclusive right to print works, and the king's messengers could go into homes if they were suspected of having illegal presses. It's a bit of a different copyright than we might think of today, because the power was held with the publisher and not the author, and not every piece of work was automatically given the copyright. It had to be accepted by the guild, who also had the right to censor. And as you can probably guess, this was not popular. And the longer it hung around, the more it was despised. John Milton and John Locke wrote hit pieces. The glorious revolution changed the political sphere and the rise of public coffee houses where people would stay and debate ideas made the exchange of information for the public all the more important. The monopoly of the press was not renewed in 1695. Scholars would talk about the 1662 law as a stepping stone for copyright. But the first copyright as we know it which is provided for by the government and protected by the courts, came in 1710, with the Statute of Anne in Great Britain. With this bill, the license went to the author, not the publisher, and it prescribed a copyright term of 14 years, with a provision for renewal for a similar term, during which only the author and the printers to whom they chose to license their works could publish the author's creations. It also included a legal deposit, meaning that there needed to be a copy available at the King's Library, University of Oxford, and the University of Cambridge for the public. But the important thing was that the statue of Anne considered the work property of the author, meaning that just producing the work and giving effort to do as such gave them ownership of it. This statute had its problems and its triumphs, and many countries took part of this statute and reinterpreted it while keeping other sections, including the United States and France. But as printing expanded and authors wanted to thrive internationally, different interpretations became more and more of a problem. For example, which is the emphasis of copyright, the economical concerns, as Great Britain interpreted it, or the power of the author, as France interpreted it? Why could you have copyright in Britain, but then go across the channel and see anyone be able to sell and print your works? This led to Victor Hugo, of Les Mis and The Hunchback of Notre Dame fame, to instigate what came to be known as the Berne Convention, named after the Swiss city where it took place. The Berne Convention, held in 1886, is extremely important when looking at copyright because it established many pivotal things we take for granted today, 
It introduced the concept that protection exists the moment a work is fixed, that is, written or recorded on some physical medium. Its author is automatically entitled to all copyright in the work and to any derivative works, unless and until the author explicitly disclaims them or until the copyright expires. Unlike the original copyright definitions we talked about above, the author does not register or apply for a copyright in countries adhering to the convention. It also enforces a requirement that countries recognize rights held by the citizens of all other parties to the convention, meaning foreign authors are given the same rights and privileges to copyrighted material as domestic authors in any country that ratified the convention. This set of countries is now called the Bern Union and includes 181 of 195 countries. Most of them have language sounding very similar to what was ratified almost 150 years ago. The U.S. copyright definition, for example, just states that copyright protects original works of authorship as soon as an author fixes the work in a tangible form of expression. Sounds pretty similar, right? And that's where we are today, with seven revisions being made to the Berne Convention, but we are unlikely to see any more, especially since any member can veto any new proposal. We will get to some of these questions that copyright has raised later on in the episode, like what counts as derivative and do board game mechanisms count? But for now, let's talk about what happens to works that are copyrighted. As we said, once something is fixed, it is protected by all of the states in the Burn Union. For example, this podcast, once I record it and upload it, has a copyright symbol on the bottom of the page. I own this podcast's copyright, but for how long? That really depends on the medium and the country, because now we are getting into the idea of public domain which actually dates back to the Romans in the mid-18th century. Public domain simply means all the creative work to which no exclusive intellectual property rights apply. Those rights may have expired, they might have been forfeited, expressly waived, or be inapplicable. Like, for example, when somebody publishes it straight to the public domain. Because no one holds the exclusive rights, anyone can legally use or reference those works without permission. So, for example, Winnie the Pooh hit the public domain in 2022. And now, this year, we got a horror movie using Winnie the Pooh called Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. No, I'm not making that up. You should absolutely go look it up, but according to reviews, not actually see the movie. But they had to be very careful that everything in the movie came from the original books, because only the books hit public domain, not Disney's version of Pooh. Copyright law allows something called a derivative copyright, meaning that the character created is wholly unique from just the work itself. This is how you get James Bond having its own copyright, not just Casino Royale. And it's also why only the Steamboat Willie version of Mickey Mouse is hitting public domain next year. Disney proved that each iteration of Mickey was unique enough to warrant a derivative copyright for it, meaning that I don't think we are going to get a plethora of Mickey Mouse games outside of Disney producing it anytime soon. And now, three pages into the script, we can finally get to board games, because this is the very reason why we see so many games featuring the same older characters over and over again. Because they are public domain, publishers don't need to ask permission to use the material. They just have to pay a fee. In fact, that's how I got my intro-outro to this podcast. I think the most interesting game to look at is the Unmatched series. Coming out in 2019 and following up with many expansion sets, Unmatched is, according to its BGG page, a highly asymmetrical miniature fighting game for two or four players. Each hero is represented by a unique deck designed to evoke their style and legend. The first volume they came out with features all characters in the public domain. Sinbad, Alice in Wonderland, Medusa, and King Arthur. This was a smart move by Restoration Games and Mondo Games, as they could just pay a flat fee to use these characters. But where it gets more interesting is in their expansions, which, when out of print, can go for over $100. Some of these expansions include legendary people like Bruce Lee, or fantastic characters like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Deadpool. But the problem is, the publisher can only get a license to use those characters for a certain amount of time. And if the licensor is a pain to work with, they probably don't want to. 
Take the Jurassic Park expansion, which features Dr. Sattler versus T-Rex. Rumors indicate that Universal and Laura Dern, the actress who played Dr. Sattler, were pretty hard to get into agreement to use for the game, both in how the character is used, but also the likeness. Not to mention how expensive the license is to use on top of that, one has a feeling that this expansion is going to head into the $100 range once its print run is over. Even though the Unmatched series is successful, this only makes the licensor more apt to ask for more money, which come in a fee at the beginning, royalties from sales, or maybe both. For a publisher like Mondo Games and Restoration Games, both publishers that I'm sure make a profit but aren't rolling in dough, it's probably a better option for them to release more public domain-based expansions, like the well-received Cobble and Fog, or move on to other IPs, like the upcoming Marvel Teen Spirit expansion that features teen superheroes Ms. Marvel, Squirrel Girl, Cloak, and Dagger. This harkens back to the idea that the publisher themselves don't have the power, the authors do. By making the work, you can of course sell the license for someone to use parts of that work, but you ultimately have the power. It is the debate that goes back centuries. Should the company be allowed to continue using the work they got permission for and paying for it if they want to because it's economically good, or should the author have the ultimate power? And this idea that authors can have the power is the reason that many publishers will try to, alongside the work, buy the copyright as well. Or for some publishers, they prefer to keep a lot of their staff in-house, with some of them owning at least part, if not all, of the rights of the game that their design team makes. And this is especially prominent in the video game world. But it's for this very reason that a lot of designers decide to stay freelance and then license their games out to publishers. Again, since the power remains mainly with the author, it means that the author can negotiate. Of course, the company has economic power, but it doesn't leave the author wrung out to dry. Probably the most famous designer who frequently has strict licensing terms and isn't afraid to pull the plug when they aren't met is Reiner Knizia, one if not the most prolific board game designers of all time. Knizia has used the courts multiple times for breach of contracts, partly because of these licensing terms and copyright infringements, and two of them fairly recently. The first was in 2018, when Reiner Knizia sued publisher Karsten Adlong about Nexpress, for which Karsten Adlong was also responsible as author, and its relationship to Express by Reiner Knizia. According to the press release, Nexpress had considerable differences with the game Express by Reiner Knizia, which was previously in the program at Adlong and whose contract for the rights of use had expired. This resulted in accusations of copyright infringement and competition law. Whatever was said behind closed doors seemed to side with Knizia, as Adlong had to agree to refrain from any further use and transfer the Express trademark registered by Adlong to Knizia. The second has to do with exclusivity of geography. We talked before that early copyright law said the publisher could decide what to publish and where, but later law gives this power to the author under the Byrne Convention. Basically, the author can sign a deal with X publisher to publish the game in the US, then Y publisher in the UK. This allows the authors to tweak things like the name, some rules, or culturally dependent points. This is how Grail Games got into trouble over Reiner Knizia's Whale Writers, a successful Kickstarter that has been heralded by some as a return to form for Knizia. However, although it did well economically and was poised to be a success for Grail Games, Knizia suddenly pulled the plug on their agreement. No longer was Grail Games going to have a lineup of updated Knizia titles. It came out that this was due to them violating the exclusivity clause. According to a response given to TechRaptor, the breaches of contract that Grail Games had caused was regarding sales into markets that had not been licensed by Grail Games. This is major since it interfered with region exclusivity deals that Knizia had established with business partners in Germany, France, Belgium, Spain, Brazil, Portugal, Japan, China, and Taiwan. Yikes. These region exclusivity deals are extremely important to Knizia, and it also allows him to get copyrights on these different versions. It is often joked about that Knizia designs can feel like derivatives of one another, but that's just the thing. They kind of are. They're derivative copyrights, unique to one another. 
Take the trick-taking game Voodoo Prince and the later Marshmallow Test. They are quite similar games, with some blogs stating that Marshmallow Test was actually the original version before the publisher wanted to tweak it. However, it depends what country you are in that determines which game you can get. In the US, you can get Marshmallow Test, which is probably the right call since I think the art will be unpopular in certain parts of the country. But in Japan and South Korea, you only get Voodoo Prince. By having these exclusivity deals and being strict about them, it allows Knizia to do pretty much exactly what copyright law was intended, to allow the author their rewards for creating the work. But this does warrant a question that is continuing to develop. What exactly of games can be copyrighted? Well, that's a bit of a difficult question that has a lot of ramifications, but first we need to define a couple more terms. Because copyright is just one branch of the intellectual property tree. There's also trademarks, patents, and company secrets, although that last one we aren't going to talk about since it's not really relevant to our discussion. Let's start with trademarks, because it's the most relevant to our Canizia story and board game designers as well. Trademarks are words, symbols, and devices that indicate a source of origin for a good or service. It is used to protect the names, logos, slogans, and other unique aspects of the games, like the name Monopoly. Hasbro can't require you to stop saying Monopoly, but they can stop you from making a game using the Monopoly brand. This is what happened to Canizia whose first contract for sophisticated games was for Lord of the Rings, a cooperative game based on the books from J.R.R. Tolkien. According to his interview with W. Eric Martin, since that design was for a licensed title with a well-known name, Knizia had no say over the game title in that contract. When he later signed with Sophisticated for Mensa, which they would later change to Ingenious, apparently they used a similar contract, so once again the issue of the name was left out of his hands. He tried fighting back for the rights after Sophisticated, rightly filed a trademark so they could sell the product in the US and didn't need his permission to do so. But he didn't win, and instead he has started an updated version of the game called Axio. But probably the most recently famous case of trademark controversy was 2022's case that involved Wizards of the Coast, whom we will also talk about in the next section, and TSR. There's a whole timeline of events that happened here, and I'll link to it in the show description because it's an interesting read. But essentially, TSR was sold to Wizards of the Coast a long time ago. But as we've talked about in the podcast, you need to renew this. Wizards forgot to renew this trademark and new ownership, including one of Gary Gygax's sons, swept in and took the trademarks for the new version of TSR. Wizards kind of ignored it until pictures were leaked of the new Star Frontiers, which included racist rules, describing a Negro race with below-average intelligence and a Nordic race with above-average statistics. Citing irreparable harm to the brand and the trademark, as Wizards continues to sell under that trademark name, Wizards of the Coast filed an injunction to get TSR to stop sales. There's a lot of details going into the case, but it'll ultimately come down to a jury deciding if TSR can come swoop in and grab the trademark because the Wizards lapsed on it, or if it falls under common law trademark rights because they continued to sell it and use the trademark. Basically, trademarks are one of the greatest protections for board game designers because it can protect the distinctive aspects of the game. One should just look for what is called trade dress. As Thuan Tran writes for Meeple Mountain, trade dress, which refers to the overall image and appearance of the game, includes its size, shape, colors, graphics, and packaging. It may also be protectable if it's considered to be inherently distinctive, as in people immediately recognize that game merely by looking at the package, or have acquired distinctiveness through secondary meaning. You see this all the time, with some famous examples being the eggshell blue of Tiffany boxes, the fluted shape of a Coca-Cola bottle, and the shape of an iPhone. Another branch of the tree is patents. A patent gives its owner the legal right to exclude others from making, using, or selling the patented invention. These come in two flavors, utility and design. The mechanics and components of a game may be patented if it meets four requirements of patentability. It has to be patentable subject matter. In the United States, these are processes, machines, manufacturers, and compositions of matter. 
Two, it has to be useful. Three, it has to be novel, as in unlike anything else. And four, it has to be non-obvious. So you can't have a patent for including a spinner, but if you said your game has players spin a spinner and then conform their bodies on a mat, well, that is, and that's the patent that Twister has. In fact, lots of older games have patents on their designs, including Mousetrap, Monopoly, and Scrabble. One of the most recent big examples of patents and their work in legal areas was Wizards of the Coast patenting Magic the Gathering. According to Sandy Rocklin, in 1995, Wizards of the Coast filed a patent application for what eventually became what we will call the 332 patent, which detailed broad Magic the Gathering game rules. The 332 patent covered a method of playing games with two or more players with deck construction, shuffling, drawing, playing, discarding, and general turn sequence in accordance with undisclosed game rules. It also covers turning cards to indicate a state of use, which is known as tapping. Wizards has attempted to sue using this patent at least twice, most recently in 2015 over a crowdfunding project, but probably more interestingly in 2003, when they sued Pokemon USA for poaching their employees and infringing on patented technologies and methodologies. Both cases were settled out of court, however, so we don't really know how much the patent had to do with anything. What's interesting about patents, however, is that they are extremely rare in the case of board games, at least compared to the other two branches of IP. For one, it's extremely costly. But more than that, it's the inability to prove novelty and non-obviousness. An important case was decided by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2014, Alice v. CLS Bank, in which the court decided that organizing a bunch of abstract ideas into a set of organized rules does not constitute enough to be patentable. If you read the case, it is about software, but many lawyers felt that board game mechanics fell in the same pattern. Take Endless Winter, which brings in mechanics like deck building, area majority, hand management, work placement, and I think one of the expansions even has set collection. It has these all organized into a set of rules, but it does not qualify for a patent because none of this is extremely novel. It just builds off of someone else's things. The idea that abstract rules are not patent eligible was held up later in Re Marco Gildenar holding BV. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. We talked earlier about the goodness of copyrights, that they give power to the author to not have their works used improperly. But the leniency of IP is also very important. Can you imagine if someone was able to slap a patent on deck building? How many great games we would be without? And this is the fine line we see and why there are so many arguments in IP these days. Not to mention the financial liability and lawyer fees. Getting caught up in this stuff is not something companies really want to do. So you tease tons of Dracula games, generic fantasy themes that look like one another, and why you see big companies coming out with the latest Marvel game. The smaller companies can't afford the IP or to risk getting into trouble, even by doing a parody. It's why next year we could get Steamboat Willie games. Tigger can be included with the rest of Pooh's friends, and the play version of Peter Pan might make an appearance. If you start seeing Citizen Kane start appearing on lots of items, well, now you know why. They all hit the public domain next year. And I can't wait for the unmatched Steamboat Willie vs. Peter Pan. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Board Game Dojo. It was one of the most technical episodes we've had so far, and I enjoyed researching it, so I hope you found some interest in them as well. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review on your podcast app if you like the show. We'd really appreciate it. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Let me know what you think of stuff. It's like just me sitting in front of a microphone kind of shouting out into the void. I would much prefer talking to you online. So let us know. We are at the Board Game Dojo, and I will put the links to those as well in the show description. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, Janae.